Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. 20% of the girls are self-harming. The huge increase we've seen in mental health problems in, in this country, but in other countries of the world, is mainly made up from teenage girls. I see amongst young women at the moment is the anxiety about not being good enough. They reduce that anxiety by working all the time, and that's unsustainable. It's in the hurly-burliness of life that kids learn their resilience, isn't it? Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. It is such an honour and a real privilege to be introducing you to today's guest. She is Dr. Tara Porter, a clinical psychologist and an esteemed writer who works clinically in the NHS, which is the National Health Service in the UK, and specifically in Camden's mental health services and sector for eating disorders, primarily with teenage girls and their families. Given the recent stats and the crisis that many of us are facing and are actually in, and the amount of concern that we've had about young teen girls and their eating, I could not be more relieved to be having this conversation with somebody in the know and with the wealth of experience that Tara has. Tara has also written a book. She is the author of You Don't Understand Me, The Young Woman's Guide to Life, which is beautifully written and aimed at speaking to young girls going through the adolescent period themselves. She writes articles about mental health for magazines, journals and newspapers. Tara has a special interest in mental health in schools and will often go into schools to teach pupils, teachers or parents about the importance of mental health. She is also a mental health columnist for the Times Educational Supplement. You may have read some of her articles already and is a judge on their Schools of the Year Award. Tara is an associate tutor on the doctorate program for clinical psychologists at UCL and has a wealth of experience working with young people and adults in this arena. So without further ado, I cannot wait to delve into this conversation and get some real practical tips and advice for how we can support our girls and their mental health during the teen years. Thank you so much, Tara, for coming on to the Elevate podcast and being with us today. Yeah, and I'm thrilled to be here. And I agree that our work is very aligned. So it's very exciting to talk to you. Oh, excellent. So I just wanted to touch on some of the staggering statistics that right in the introduction of your book, you've hit us with, which is probably the reason that you and I are both doing what we do and why we're here today. I wanted to address at least one of those, talk to us about how we might alleviate some of these worrying concerns that we can all see for our young girls. One of the facts that you share is self-harm among girls of the ages of 16 to 24 years has shot up from 6% the year 2000 to around 20% today. And your aim with this book is to help young girls feel more understood. I'd love to know, with the title of your book being 
you don't understand me. Why do we think that girls are so misunderstood at the moment? It's a really good, really good question. And I think that if you, when I was, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about that. I think teenagers have always been slightly misunderstood by their parents. If you go back in literature, you know, uh, we look at, you know, Jane Austen, Elizabeth Bennet didn't feel understood by her mother, you know, but I think there have been some changes over the last 20 years, which have uh, made that sense of not being understood worse. And I think that's down to, I, I think it's down to probably three different things. And, and I think that's about, you know, when we think about the changes in the last 20 years in terms of the education system and what we expect from our girls now, I think that's really been a seismic change. Girls are much more career orientated and we have higher expectations from them in what they're going to achieve academically. I think also there's been this huge technological advance where now we've got the internet and we've got social media it's a much more visual culture for girls, but also it's a much more secret culture in a way. We're much less attached to what they're doing day in, day out. They have their own little worlds on TikTok and Instagram. And also related to that, I think it's a globe, much more global culture, isn't it? You know, the internet is part of that. But in terms of our global connectedness and the amount we travel and the, the amount people uh, think about moving around the world in terms of their work, you know, that can be a really positive thing. All of these things can be really positive things, but they have their complexities. So a global society leads to a real sense of competition with it, I think, which can be really, you know, damaging girls. So I think those are the three factors that really lead to girls being more misunderstood. That's really important points to have highlighted and I do I do agree with you at Jane Austen times the girls were just as misunderstood probably if in those days and maybe we've forgotten all of that and maybe they, we think of them as simpler times I think they were I think they were probably less misunderstood because it wasn't so secret their culture was it so if they were with the phone the girls the girls culture is more secret from us isn't it it's more private that's true this week happens to be a mental health awareness week as well and I think the work that both you and I are doing particularly in the field that you work in are with young girls in terms of particularly in their in the mental health and mental illness states I wondered if we should talk on obviously it's great that we have these weeks to, to bring this together but probably mental health with teen girls is not something that we can ever let go of it's something that we probably need to talk about all year round but given that we are at this point I thought we might start with talking a little bit about your definitions or your understanding or explanations for parents, maybe the differentiation between mental illness and mental health. I know one of them might be more reactive and one of them is preventative, perhaps. I don't know if that's a good way of looking at it, but you might have a better explanation for us. I think that's a pretty good way of understanding it. I mean, I think when we're thinking about mental health, with if you're mentally healthy, you still have can have really strong emotions about things. You, you can feel in any one day, angry or worried or a bit sad about something. But when people are in a good mental health, it's part of a pattern of ups and downs and the feelings aren't too long lasting. They aren't too intense. People can bounce back from them quickly and they also are able to get on with their everyday life. And I think when, when feelings get really stuck and they last too long or they're too intense or they stop young people doing their normal 
development or their normal everyday life, that is when we would call it, I guess, a mental illness. And of course, we talk about the terms as though they're completely separate, but of course, it's a continuum um, and we can be anywhere along that kind of continuum. Thank you for that. I think that's helpful in understanding what we're looking at when we're looking at our young children, because as we know, teen years are full of all sorts of different emotional ups and downs. So knowing well, when we should be concerned and when we shouldn't be maybe is important as well. I think that's a really good point, actually, because, you know, teenagers can come home and it can feel like an absolute disaster about something that's happened at school that day and they can dump it on you as a parent and you can feel incredibly worried. And then five minutes later, you hear them laughing and joking with their friends. And, 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 and of course, that is having strong emotions isn't being mentally ill. They're, they're separate things. So it would be mentally ill if they got really stuck in that feeling and they couldn't escape from it. And it was impacting on their everyday life that they weren't able to talk to their friends or laugh or joke or things like that. So as a parent, if that did happen to one of us and we had a very strong, reactive young girl come home, what would you advise is the right way to support a young person that comes home with such a strong emotional need to share something? And you, I know most parents, myself probably included, get worked up. And I've also been on the receiving end where parents then phone the school immediately saying, my daughter's come home with this terrible news. And, you know, what are you doing at school to solve it for her? What would you suggest as a good way of coping with that? If your daughter comes down back from school one day and is saying the girls have been mean to her and she had a terrible day and it's all awful, I think your job is really to think of yourself as a container for those emotions. You're going to, she's going to dump those emotions on you and you're going to contain them and you're going to listen and you're going to be there and you're going to try really, really hard not to offer any advice because that's going to just be knocked down and they're not going to listen to it anyway. There was a book out many years ago called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus where where men were accused, I guess, in that book of trying to solve women's problems and what women wanted them to do was to listen. But sometimes I feel like as parents, we can be the ones from Mars and the children from Venus where we're trying to solve their problem. We want to share our wisdom with them. And of course, most of us don't want that when we're feeling down or sad. We just want somebody to listen and understand and empathize with how hard it is. But then, you know, if a child comes home from school you know, every day for a month and they're saying that they're for, I don't know, a couple of weeks and saying that people are being mean to them, then you need to be thinking about bullying and then you need to be thinking about contacting the school. I mean, we want to be contacting the school when we're, when we're slightly calm and when we thought it through, when we know what we want, um, not in a kind of emotional way. We don't want to rush in and solve their problems. I mean, that, that links to some of your, your superpowers, doesn't it? Because it's giving them the girls a sense of resilience, that this will pass. We... In fact, we all have bad days, but it's linked to that idea of empathy, of trying to show them empathy and to model empathy to them by showing them empathy, all that good stuff. Yes, and, and remembering to use it in the moment. <laughs> that's, that's the key, I think, as parents. So you begin brilliantly in, by, in the book by explaining attachment and belonging. And I think that forms the genesis and the crucial foundation of so many things in our young person's growth and development in later years. You mentioned in teen years, girls may love their parents or hate them, or they might oscillate between the two. I think many parents listening to this will really relate, but that girls fundamentally should and will recognize that their parents are there for them, or maybe that they don't recognize that, and they realize that this is due to the fact that the attachment bond between them and their parent is either damaged or broken. Now, I found this really profound, and I, I really wanted to touch on this because you say many girls can feel lost or 
floating free without an anchor. And I thought this was a really helpful analogy, as many of your analogies are. Without going into, obviously, the whole psychology of, of your work that you do, I just thought if you could give me a short summary of perhaps how we think these attachment bonds can be damaged or how they get broken somehow, and what should we be doing to help, if there's any way of mending that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably worth reminding your listeners or me reminding them that um, I've written the book to young people, to teenage girls and young women to try and help them understand. And so I'm imagining when I'm writing that, that some of the young people are like some of the young people who I sometimes see in therapy who have suffered you know, quite an abusive or cold relationship with their parents. They haven't had good enough parenting. I'm sure that, you know, we all worry about being a good enough parent. And I'm sure, but I'm sure many of the people listening, most of the people listening today don't have that really that's not going to be part of what they're struggling with at the moment because they're they're motivated and they're interested in their parenting they're listening to a parenting podcast but what I was trying to explain is that you know the attachment bond generally gets broken when as a younger child a child doesn't feel that their their parent is emotionally there for them they haven't got that sense of reciprocity that you should get in an emotional relationship and I, I make reference in the in my book to something called the still face experiment, which is a really interesting, it's a little experiment done with a a one-year-old and and their mum. And the one-year-old and mum are just sitting, like having a little chat, like you know, baby chat, where you go, oh, Gaga, yes, he's a clever girl. And the mum's holding the baby's hands and and it's like they're interacting. And then the the experiment is then the mum goes to a completely blank face and doesn't respond to the baby. And you see the baby working so hard to re-engage their mum again. And the baby tries to point, they try to clap. And after a a short while, the baby becomes very distressed because a baby and a young child needs reciprocity. You need needs to be responded to in a way of being cared for. And that experiment it shows so much about what the attachment bond is. So if you, if when young people have they've experienced a relationship with their parent where their parent has never really been that responsive to them, who hasn't really cared for them that much, they haven't got that attachment bond. And it's so interesting because I often use that clip when I'm teaching. And I, so I watch my audience as they're watching that clip. And everyone's face, most people's faces, respond to, they smile when they see the baby and the young and the parent playing together. And then when the baby starts to get distressed, everyone, they, they oh gosh, their faces all look sad too. And, and it, that kind of reciprocity is what we need for a good attachment bond. Right. Yeah, that connection and that sense of I'm being listened to. I'm being listened to. I'm being cared for. So it's it's a primarily an emotional thing. You said the word good enough parent. And I love that phrase because I think it leads me on beautifully onto my next question, which is some of us don't want to just be good enough. Many of us want to be that perfect parent. And then there's the idea around actually there's the concept of perfect parenting. Does it actually exist? And are the messier, more chaotic types of parenting where you have this rupture and repair sort of relationship with your with your child is actually probably healthier. And I know 
a lot of parents and carers listening might find solace in hearing that messy and chaotic parenting is actually quite good for family life and that we are all imperfectly perfect and, and that is what will lead to what we strive for in perfect parenting. But I wondered if you could share some of your thoughts on this. The phrase good enough parenting comes from Winnicott and he, um, who's a very famous psychotherapist, one of the fathers of psychotherapy, and his premise was it's in the love and then the getting on with life or the arguments or that 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 children learn how to navigate the world. Because if you're trying to be a perfect parent, if you're trying never to lose your temper or always to smooth out the problems of life so your child has a really clear path through life, that's not preparing them for life. Because the people on the tube and the people at work and the people, their potential friends, their potential romantic partner, aren't going to do that for them. And so it, the, that's the problem, really. So it's in the, the hurly-burliness of life that kids learn their resilience, isn't it? And also in the rupture and repair, they, they learn how to manage their emotions. They learn how, how to do that. But also in the perfect parent model, if you try and have, you know, it's setting an expectation on your your, your child. You're, you're investing so much into your child and you're setting, they're having that expectation that they have to be the perfect child or they have to live up to you. And gosh, that's hard, isn't it, really? So you can you can be imperfectly perfect all you like. That's quite reassuring, actually. And it's a huge amount of pressure. You're right. I hadn't quite realized again what you're doing to your child as much as you are to yourself. You're putting an intense amount of and then undoubtedly you're setting yourselves up to fail because there is no way you're ever going to keep those levels up when life happens and life life is messy, isn't it? Life happens. Yeah. You know, somebody trying to get out of the house and you're all perfectly dressed and then somebody drops their coffee and then the dog starts barking and then you know um you're going to be late and you've got a parking ticket you know and these things happen and and it's um of course we should try and demonstrate you know good humor and it's trying to keep our temper as much as possible but also demonstrate that we're humans and things go wrong and and our emotions go up and down and we deal with it which is great modeling again and then i wanted to sort of move on from that to those, especially mums and daughters, maybe not all mums and daughters. There's this real hope and dream when, when you have a little girl that one day you're going to be best friends. And when they get into teen years and they start to express their interests and maybe music tastes and things like that, mums really want to be on board with this idea of being friendly with their daughter. Now, I guess I have a, this is sort of a Marmite thing, isn't it, for me as well, because I think you mentioned that sometimes this can express a little bit of concern for you. And I would love it if you could explain why and why this is actually not as healthy as parents might think it is for young children, because it creates an obstacle for teens to achieve what their main goal at this point in life is actually to do, which is separation or individuation from your parents. So could you expand on that for me? Yes, I mean, I actually think it's lovely to be your child's friend, obviously, and to share music and, and you know, to go shopping with your daughter or whatever it is that, you know, have your nails done or, you know, just hang out watching a movie, whatever it is that you want to do. You don't want to be not friends with them. But I think there's, you know, sometimes I see young people, and again, you know, I'm trying to explain it to young people who might be reading this book who have lit, and I gave give a case example, actually, in the, in the book of, of somebody where this happens where their parents really haven't had any sort of boundaries um, and 
that sometimes when you're the best friend, it can be hard to have a bound, not to have a boundary to, to kind of press up against. So it's about that balance, really. So I see, you know, I've seen some kids where, you, you know, the sort of, they smoke a spliff with their parents at the kitchen table. Now, if you're doing that kind of thing with your your kid, then where's the rebellion? Where do, where can their evolutionary drive to separate and individuate come out? That can be difficult for some young people. For some people, you know, they they navigate it fine. But I've seen young people where they've had to take the kind of, do you remember Safi on Absolutely Fabulous? Do you remember that? Where they've had to come like a really square kind of kind of uh, serious child against their parents who are kind of so cool and laid back and never have any boundaries. Or it could go the other way where, well, young, I mean, young people can respond to that. Oh, my parents doesn't care whether I have weed. Well, well, what if I have coke? What will they do if I do that? Where is the boundary? Where, how far am I going to push before they say no? Being a friend of your pet, of your child, is, is uh, being friendly with your children is is important and lovely, and you want them to be able to talk to you and all those sorts of things. But you've just got to be careful that you balance it with a little bit of, of boundaries and and firmness, and and taking the the you know the parental or the adult line so that they have a you know a container to grow in which is safe. That's amazing. Thank you for that reminder and helpful advice for all of us as we desperately try and dress cooler or or act cooler around their friends and when their children are cringing um which i think yeah, uh, the thing isn't it you, you're gonna get it wrong anyway you know you're just that's <laughs> just to be mum with boundaries i like that i was also and i said it to you i like i like so many of the analogies you use it's really helpful visualizations that you you've included in your book and one of them is that of a dance analogy for raising children and referring to this intricate dance between parent and child when you're raising that family and this dance is happening at a nightclub, but the nightclub is run by the parents. So speaking to the boundaries that you speak about just now, I think when they're younger, it's all going quite well that you're holding hands and you're, sim- you're skipping along together and you're in sync, if you like, and the dance is kind of in, in rhythm quite happily. Uh, moving along but then I think if you could sort of move on to what's happening to this dance when girls become teenagers that would be really great for our listeners to hear yeah so in, in my book I have the first chapters about attachment and we you know we talked about the still face experiment and how the mum and the baby are in the sink and they're kind of talking to each other and they're responding to each other and that can be lots of a, a good way of thinking about the first you know 10 or 13 years say up to teenage years but when at a certain point, it's natural for children to be stop looking towards their parents and start looking outwards and to their peers. And we have to think that their friends, you know, amongst their friends and their peers, they're going to find their future work colleagues, their future partners in life, their best friends. And so they're looking out about where they're going, who are they going to be living their lives with? That's the evolutionary drive to to leave home, to make their own life. And so as they do that, and in the analogy of the the nightclub, they start to look around the nightclub and they start to think it's really uncool. The music's lame. The the lighting is so off. And look at dad's dancing. It's just so awful. And they want to go and dance somewhere else. And this is the analogy of they want to go and off and be with their friends. And 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 in in the book, I explained to the young people that, that... if your parents are nice and 
you know, and, and they'll be a bit sad about that, but they'll let you go and they'll let you go, expect you back at a certain time and they'll let you go and try a few new drinks at somebody else's nightclub, but want you to come home and eventually that you will leave and you'll find that actually in your own nightclub, you probably take some of your parents' lame music and, uh, and famous uh, drinks or cocktails or dancing styles. So you take something of your parents, but you make your own life. And that's the kind of message that I wanted, was trying to give there with that analogy. Oh, I think that's really comforting, both for, for any young girls listening to this podcast and also for parents listening to it. It's nice to think about this idea that you are preparing them for, you know, setting up their own life, but with parts of you. So to so let them go and, and explore those boundaries as well. Yeah, that's really nice. And I say, actually, I carry on that analogy a little bit more. And I say, and you'll probably go back to your parents' nightclub and realize that they've started playing some of your music or updated the decor. And, you know, and so there's that idea that, you know, your child is separate and they're different. And that will, that, you have to give that enough space and time. And and then hopefully you, it will pull you along in your life as well, that you will change and develop. And they will introduce you to new plays and music and tv shows and fashion styles and shops and all that tiktok videos whatever it is and how can you absorb that how can you absorb their individuality into your life as well talking about friendships and i, I will come back to one of the other questions i had but like seeing as we're talking about looking outwards and looking at what's happening in nightclubs of our friends i thought we would talk a little bit about the importance of female friendships and teen girls in friendships particularly during the early teen and then later teen years why that becomes such a huge issue you talk about fitting in finding your tribe i wonder from your wealth of experience and all the work that you do with young adolescent girls what some of these complexities from the enormity of pressure young girls put on themselves to find good friendships within teen age years what what are the issues and what can parents do to and teachers possibly listening to this because obviously a lot of this happens at school what can we do to help young people feel more secure in friendships I suppose is the question and what are the complexities around teen girls and friendships there's a sort of perfect storm of factors going on isn't there there's you know, we were just talking about the, the 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 evolutionary urge to move away from your family, to look out of yourself, to look to the future, to look to your friends and peers. But that comes at a time where, you know, young people are awash with hormones. They're experimenting with their own identity. They're not quite sure what they think and feel about things, what they like, what they don't. And then you add into that that... that young people are very concerned about how other people see them a lot of evaluation a lot of evaluatory pressure going on it's a really tricky mix in friendship years and I guess why that chapter was so important to me and actually it's my favorite chapter in the book um, is because it I think it was the first one I wrote is because it's it really connects to people that chapter I think it connects to women as well as 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 girls I think it's really about understanding what's going on in friendship and I think one of the things that's really key to understand about teenage friendship is, is that they're often especially in secondary school or high school it's often about power rather than being liked and that is really is it I I another analogy gosh I make a lot of analogies I make an analogy to a sort of stormy sea because I think most women have friendships where they're really close and their friends is just an uncomplicated part of their life it's a part of their life where everything else is complicated but they're 
and then they go see their girlfriends and it's just like a, a bathing in a warm sea a, a very calm a very happy place for most grown-up women but, but in the teenagers it can be quite stormy and the idea about being popular and, and liked is that when kids are experimenting with their identity they're really concerned about how they can how they're going to be evaluated what we find is that if you do research and you ask kids in any sort of high school year who are the kids in your year who are popular they can name the kids who are popular and then they ask them and who do you like and they can name the kids they like and then they put all that data together and what they discover is it's a very small overlap between those kids who are popular and those kids who are liked so popularity in high school years is often to do with social power basically it's a, and what the currency of social power is in that particular school so it might be about sporting ability or it might be about looks or it might be about academic prowess or it might be about being cool or having being attractive to the opposite sex or you know those sorts of things are what social power is about in high school whereas being liked is about being genuine it's about empathy it's about emotional IQ you know all the things that we talk about kindness um, and I think that's when I say that to uh, teenage girls, particularly, it's just like a revelation. You know, it's like, oh, I understand now. Yes, that's what's going on here. And it's still hard to live it. It's still hard not to be part of the popular group or to be left out or all of those different things. But once they understand it a little bit more and they understand that it will end, it could be really helpful to them. That's gorgeous. Thank you. I think that is a real, I, f- I felt the same sense of relief reading that that you just expressed with that breath that you took because it is so prevalent and it happens wherever I've lived it's not like a, a London thing or a Canada thing or a New York thing I feel like it's universal and no matter where I speak to people around the world it's the same so I think maybe we can take a little bit of reassurance in the fact that we're all going through it as well and then that sort of then leads me back to wondering the role of the parent at this time I know the book is written to young girls and I think that's really great but any parents listening to this I wondered if we could talk about what you talk when you say that parenting went from being a noun to a verb because we often see our girls unhappy or we want to fix, like you said earlier, fix their problems and friendships. There's nothing like friendships and wanting our children to fit in and feeling that they're liked that gets parents you know, more worked up and maybe grades do as well. But I think if we could talk a little bit about that and the role that we can play to help girls navigate these tricky, stormy seas. Yeah, I think so. I think, again, it's about the parent trying not to overreact trying to because you can feel it passionately when your child is being left out or your child is being hurt but that isn't helpful to your young person because then they just have to worry about your emotions so what's helpful is you know this idea of being a kind of container for the emotions and to hear it and understand it and to empathize with it and to really acknowledge how difficult that is um and to really um later on in the book I talk about having an emotional mind and a a rational mind and and you have to you and where they overlap is your wise mind and I think in that kind of situation when your when your child comes home from school and they're feeling left out and they're feeling hurt you really have to use both because you can feel it on a real visceral level you know you feel like somebody's hurting your child that's just so painful to you that's not going to be helpful to them on a rational level you'll have you know the kind of knowledge about that this is a universal problem and you're Right, that research about being popular and being liked in lots of different countries of the world and shown to be true. 
And where's your wiseness? Where's your wiseness? It's about balancing it. It's about making a judgment. When is this a real problem, which I have to intervene in? And when is this something that I've got to support her to learn to live through? Because living through that, she will be preparing her for her awful boss or for a terrible romantic relationship or what happens when she leaves home. And so supporting is, you know, sort of guiding somebody along the path and, and you know, listening, understanding, being supportive, being kind, but it's not trying to solve that problem for them. You may want to sort of reflect on, you know, your own experience, but often that results with children, with them feeling like, oh, you're not listening. And it's different for me. You don't understand what it's like at my school. And then you say, I'm really trying to understand what it's like. I'm really trying. You tell me again. I'll really listen and try and understand. Because it's with, with that joining that people get strength, isn't it? That's, again, really useful to, to remind ourselves about. I think we are guilty of often saying, oh, well, when I was your age, this is how I dealt with this. And you're absolutely right. You're going to push your children further away with those statements, aren't you? That is useful to remember. We talk about this idea then that when you're finding your tribe or looking for the, the, the right group, that there will be transitional periods, especially in middle school years. I know that's a more North American term, but the lower end of high school where you're just coming in from primary school, you're meeting all sorts of new people and some of those old friendships might be you know, not as strong and new friendships are forming, or you might be in a stage where you're between friends and you're not sure who your friends are. And I love the fact that you talk about helping your girls find inner confidence in themselves and to adopt this important skill of being alone. Now that interestingly is in my work with confidence being one of my superpowers is the part that I think girls are most fearful of. It's terrifying. I think a day at school when you're left out, a day at school you're left out or you're not being included or you feel like you're on your own and everyone's looking at you, you're walking to the lunch hall and you're on your own is exquisitely painful. And I think, you know, I think it's also something nearly everyone recognizes that they've had some point in their life where they haven't had a friend that day or that week or you know so I guess we have to think as you know as parents you have to think back to the attachment relationship you know and that that kind of rupture of a pair and, and having given them that experience that you know in in our family we have we've had arguments and and then we've made them up and that's uh, that's an important kind of building block for them to experience you know that that horrible horrible experience in 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 school but I guess um what I'm trying to help girls understand is that that when it becomes a problem is when they get a sort of internal narrative an internal narrative that I am on my own because nobody likes me and nobody will ever like me and I am fundamentally unlikable. And that's when it becomes a problem. You know, that's when it sort of switches from being having a hard day to being kind of a mental health problem. So I think you have, when you're talking to them and listening and really trying to understand what it's like for them, you have to slip in a few of those other narratives that you can give them that, you know, I gosh, that sounds horrible. I can't believe you've had such a horrible day. It's I can't. You're so brave doing this. I, I just really feel for you. I wish I could make this better for you, but I I know from from my own years or from talking to um other mums that we 
we all have days like this and that this doesn't mean anything other than that you've been alone today or you've been alone this week you are fundamentally likable person you have friends out of school you will have friends you've had friends previously you're just kind of between friendship groups and this will pass so trying to get a few of those kind of I hope you saw in that sentence I moved from the kind of empathy of the understanding and how hard it is to like trying to plant that seed that maybe this isn't because you're you know you're they think the young person might think they're an awful person so trying to avoid that kind of narrative negative self-talk becomes such a big part of it and it snowballs and escalates into I'm unlikable I must be you know I'm not beautiful enough I'm not pretty enough I'm not funny enough to fit in with these groups and even the most perfectly confident girls in junior school become incredibly judgmental and self-critical when they get to senior school because of these messages that they feed themselves. So I think this is hugely important for us to try and help support them through during those crucial years and teen years when, when our brains are changing and forming and yeah. And if you think about it in terms of, absolutely in terms of how their brain is forming, but I guess what it can become is it can become a prediction about the future. I'm unlikable, nobody liked me today, and so therefore nobody will ever like me. And of course that isn't true. And I see lots of girls who actually get stuck in friendship groups. They get stuck in it. And again, there's a case study in the, in the book about that, where they get kind of stuck in a friendship group, which isn't suitable for them, where they just don't really have any interest. And maybe it's been left over from primary school where they were, was the kids they hung out with at their old school or because in year seven, which is, I know you have an international audience, but that's when kids in the UK swap to their, to their high school that they have kind of clung on to the friends in their class. And then by year eight or year nine, they realize that actually I've got nothing in common with these people. We're completely different people. And inevitably then, um, when, the sh- when, like you say, when the, the friendships shift, that there's times where you're not really in a group, but it will shift again. Interestingly, I find that true. Even when you're in your 30s and 40s, you become different people, right? And sometimes the friends you had in your younger years or your 20s that may necessarily not be the friendships. I know Alan de Bottom talks about this idea of it's okay to move on, <laughs> you know, and, and, and remember those relationships for the good times they were in those years. But in later life, if, if they don't serve you, then it's okay to say goodbye to them. And, and I think that's... Um, probably most true and relevant in in teen years, aren't they? Because you're changing so much and your values are changing a lot as well. I love the message you had in the book for young girls on drugs. You really do champion young girls. I love the way you really embody their bravery and all their wonderful insight into the way we look at the world today. And I think you're absolutely right. I I also really marvel at this generation. I think they're fantastic. But you then say, with all this novel thinking that this generation is giving, there's a slight contradiction it presents with the way they experiment in illegally taking drugs. And obviously that is definitely, as you said earlier, part of rebelling and growing up. But could you share your message with, with us on that and your take? Well, I really, really, really tried not to lecture in this book and not to try and tell anyone off or I'm trying to understand their point of view. And I do really admire this generation. They're far more socially aware. They're more ethically aware. They're more, I think they're more empathic, which I think sometimes gets them into, you know, they feel things very deeply, which leads to some people calling them snowflakes. And they're concerned about the environment. They're concerned about 
morality. And then they tell me that they're taking drugs. And I just, and it just feels like, you know, sometimes it's a young person who's, you know, vegetarian, really cares about their food miles, that their food has traveled or, or that sort of thing. And illegal drugs is such an immoral industry. It's so built on the poverty in other, in other societies. It's built up around crime and violence and all those sorts of things. And I just couldn't resist just putting a little moral thing. Is, Hang on a minute. We'll just think about that for a minute. <laughs> so I apologise to my readers that I did give them one lecture. But it didn't come across in a very lectury way. I think you, what you did was pose a question and you asked us or them to ponder it based on all the other values that they so brilliantly bring to the table and question us, the generation before them, on our choices. So I think it was really beautifully presented. And I think parents will appreciate that slight insertion in the book. I certainly did. And I think it's a really nice, gentle way of just asking us to reflect on where we hold these values. A different way for them to think about it, because they're so used to their parents, you know, worrying about their safety or worrying about them taking drugs at all or becoming addicted or, you know, all those sorts of things. It's just a slightly different way of thinking about it, whether whether it is coherent with their other values and the way they want to live their life. No, and it is really worrying. I don't know if you've seen the, I think it's Netflix, but the show with Zendaya on uh, called Euphoria. I think it's on many of our minds. So I think it was a really, I just wanted to touch on it again, without sounding like we're lecturing or judging or or passing on any judgment at all. I just wanted to highlight that that's a really great point in the book as well. So let's move on to this whole idea around anxiety and worry and some of the ideas around catastrophizing. We've touched on a little bit, black and white, all or nothing, absolutes, shoulds, musts, oughts, and possibly how the education system might feed this into our young girls, what kind of pressures it might be putting on our young girls and how that might lead to poor mental health, namely eating disorders and all sorts of other illnesses that our young girls might pick up along the way because of some of the things that maybe the, the world around them has somehow through osmosis put into their minds and, and into their psychological way of thinking and being. I wonder if you might have any thoughts on what schools and teachers and us at home can be doing to help minimize helping our girls through these types of worries yeah I think I think one of the things that comes up for me when you ask that question Ramita is about how we talk to kids girls especially about school about education about qualifications and I want every girl to have opportunities and to be inspired and and to live her best life but I guess what we know What I hear a lot is, for example, teachers saying or heads of year saying at the beginning of every school year, this year is really serious. This year you've got to work really, really hard and you've got to ramp it up a gear. And of course, the teachers are doing this in good heart to try and motivate the kids that are unmotivated. But what I find with a lot of girls and young women is that they're working too hard. They are completely judging themselves from the grades they get in school and who need to work a bit less really and to you know a bit obsessed with their grades who are a bit obsessed with being the good girl never getting into trouble always doing better than the grade they got before so they 
if they if struggled with their maths and then they finally get a B or an A or an A star, then they feel like they always have to get it and they put themselves under tremendous pressure. And I'm sure some of your listeners will be recognising their daughters in that description. So I think we have to live as, as parents and the teachers who are listening with the knowledge that some kids will need to work harder in that school year, but some kids will be working too hard already and they need to work less hard and they need to take work less seriously and they need to have some fun. Because, you know, when we go back to those statistics that we started with, that 20% of the girls are self-harming and, you know, the huge increase we've seen in mental health problems in CAM services, child and adolescent mental health services in this country, but in other countries of the world, is mainly made up from teenage girls. You know, they are feeling that pressure really a lot. And we want to give them inspiration and opportunities, but not, not make them think that their academic performance is the most important thing for them. And so the way we talk about the interest we show in their grades, the way we talk about their work, you know, you need to do work and then we need to stop and have some fun. Work is going to be all and end all. The way we talk about schools and universities, that there isn't a best school or university, there's only a best fit for them. All those different ways, I think, we can think about trying to reduce that pressure on them. Especially right now in the UK where the kids are all studying for GCSEs, I think this is an incredibly timely piece of advice to give to listeners about fun as well and, and, and reducing the anxiety for these kids that are they're probably already putting quite a lot of pressure on themselves and then to hear anything from us that maybe counterbalances it yeah so you know your kid are they working too hard or are they working not hard enough you know and within your family you, if you have a few kids you probably got I mean it, it is quite gender this and that would be run to stereotypes but lots of boys struggle to see the motivation in work and lots of girls tend to work too hard when I went to one of my children's first parents evening when they were in year seven so they just swapped to high school and they started talking about how they might do in their GCSEs in five years time I'm not interested I, I don't think we as parents should be interested in that when they just swapped into high, high school we should be talking about are they settling in are they happy are they are they paying attention in class? Are they interested in the subject? Are you happy with their behaviour? You know, those sorts of questions. Not about that the exams are the be-all and end-all of the education system. It's funny that you say that. I had the same conversation yesterday when I was looking at a school for my son, who, as I've shared with you before, has a learning difficulty. And she said to me, what do you hope he'll achieve for GCSEs? And I said, he's just turned 12. I don't know. <laughs> like, I could not believe it. It, it, it was just an, uh, interesting that things haven't quite changed. There was a big thing in the papers this week in the UK about apprenticeships. You know, we get so stuck on university. And yet, as adults, I bet we all know people who didn't go to university and had really successful, happy lives and done well for themselves in different fields. And we just get absolutely, I think that message of academic achievement can be really dangerous for girls. So let's talk about then anxiety reduction and anxiety avoidance and methods, maybe some examples of which I hadn't quite thought of before. Is there a way that we can help girls find a happy place and a balance between the two, i.e. not overfeeding their anxiety and not starving their anxiety, which can be tricky for, for many of us. Education is one side of that and pressures around school and exam results. But I imagine the way we look, the way we exercise, the way we, you know, getting in the extracurricular activities, playing a musical instrument, speaking four languages. I don't know. I mean, the list could go on and on, couldn't it? Um, how can we help this for young girls? 
<laughs> take them off that <laughs> take them off that path but I think I think that is part of it you know it's about it's not all it shouldn't all be about doing stuff it should just be about being um it's often in the boredom or the down periods of life that you can have fun or you can have the sense of connection the sense of being understood all of those sorts of different things <laughs> one of the main anxieties I see amongst young women at the moment is the anxiety about not being good enough and they reduce that anxiety by working all the time and that's unsustainable and that actually just maintains the anxiety so we have to give young women an experience of it's okay not to be good enough all the time it goes back to what we were talking in the beginning it's okay to have down days it's okay to uh not always make the grade if you make a if you get a a B you don't you don't always have to get an A so I guess in terms of of anxiety we don't want to avoid anxiety completely but we don't want to avoid it by working in an unsustainable way really do girls feel like they're letting their parents down a lot when they're in this oh my goodness yes they do yeah, and, and their teachers as well. If I had a pound for every time I've heard, oh, my teacher will be disappointed in me. Their teacher, I know their teacher cares about them, but they don't, they're not going to be disappointed at them. They're going to be disappointed for them, possibly, but momentarily, for a moment, the teacher's got, you know, 100 other pupils. They're not going to. So they get very, very preoccupied with what other people think about them. And, and I think as parents trying to get them off that assembly line and saying, hey, that's not the only way to be. Happiness is important too. And possibly not scheduling so much for them in their lives as well, letting just letting them just be, as you say, as opposed to constantly, I don't know, I, I think sometimes we as parents are guilty of thinking that if we keep them really busy, then they won't get into trouble. But I think often then you're creating like a it's new sense of pressure for these girls because they think they've got to be great in dance and they've got to be great at netball and they've got to be great at school and, and it, it's it's a lot yeah it's a whole lot of expectation yes I think that's the kind of thing in the book where I talk about the parenting going from being a a noun um to a, a, a verb where instead of just sort of being in a relationship with your child that that, that, that your child becomes this massive self-improvement project or renovation in a way that you're you're feeling like you want to give and, and it's a narrow line it's a narrow line between giving your kids opportunities and inspiration and giving them expectations and pressure it's a very it's a tightrope to walk across really and it, it's not just on parents you know it's on the way education and society has developed and you know I'm sure your listeners will also have had the experience that if you I don't know, take your kid to swimming or tennis and you think it's just going to be like a fun activity and suddenly they start grading them as they move some kids up and they don't move other kids up or they want kids to come and play tennis three times a week because they show some promise and the kid ends up hating tennis because it becomes they really just want to play Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And so that's when active listening and showing some empathy for your child is great tool isn't it it's also about you stepping back from that kind of okay my kid isn't an improvement project my kid like I've given them the opportunity to play tennis they they don't want to play tennis six times a week it's okay yeah they don't have to be I don't have to have them on this path where they might end up in Wimbledon you know 
And so as soon as the fun goes out of it, it's, it's not great for either of you. You're a child, are you? And it's not a bonding experience anymore. There's a, there's a balance. Again, it's a balance. It's my favorite word for me. It's like there's a balance. You obviously you want them to to learn to swim and to, you know, if you're if you play tennis as a family and that's something you love to do, or you, you know, that that's you want them to learn and that's fine. And it's OK for it not sometimes not to be fun and for you to have a, a rule and a, that you have to do this or that. But there has to be also time when you know, there is just downtime and you're not doing anything and they have some free time and they get to do what they want. So I'm going to leave, I've left the most, probably the most heavy question, but I'm hoping that everything we've spoke about today so far will help feed into your answer or support for this next bit of the conversation, which is where your major expertise lies. And so having you on the podcast was a real pleasure for me because I get asked about this all the time and I'm not a specialist in this area. And it's all to do around girls' body positivity, body image, issues around eating disorders, self-harm, and what we can do particularly, possibly, I don't know if the pandemic has escalated this or if it's just a coincidence that these questions are coming up more for me in the last year than, than usual. But there's an issue around food, eating, weight and shape, isn't there, for young girls in teen years. They're growing, their body shape is changing, hormones are going all over the place. And of course, we can't cover everything on this huge topic on a, in one podcast, but I wondered, and, and, and for those of you listening and want more information, obviously the book is a great resource, but I wondered if you could help us advise any listeners on what parents can do for young girls in terms of watching out for signs that their daughter's relationship with food and her body needs attention. And secondly, what steps we can give parents and carers to follow if there indeed is an issue. I think if we get we, we sort of wind that back that question back a little bit, I think it's also worth thinking about how we demonstrate a positive relationship to food and eating and weight and shape as well, and 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 how, as particularly perhaps as women, we do not demonstrate dieting as a normal behaviour or talking about your weight or judging other people on their weight or shape or body hating ourselves. It's so endemic, but really trying to live those values to 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 be tying food into things like hunger and satiety so satiety is that idea that when you eat something and it's just the thing you wanted to eat and you feel full and you feel satisfied and you've had enough and you can stop eating tying you know food should be linked to family having family meals together to culture or sometimes to people's religion so trying not to categorize foods to remember that in our society it's kind of normal and healthy to be able to eat you know foods which are perhaps high in fat or high in sugar but you know a child <laughs> what conversation I have often have with my eating disorders patients is that they want to go off they want to go off interrailing with a backpack around Europe you cannot do that if you're not going to eat kind of so-called unhealthy foods in in speech marks if you can't eat a burger or pizza you can't go packing across Europe with your mates because that's the sort of food that you will be able to afford and everyone else will want to eat and you've got to be able to fit in so I think just trying to demonstrate those values early in life are really important and then if I come to your question about how we look out for signs of, of eating disorders I guess I mean the obvious I think it's helpful to think about your, the, the young person's behaviour, their feelings, their thinking, and what's going on physically for them. So if we take behaviour, obviously, signs of missing meals, so often starts with skipping breakfast, 
And then sometimes we're skipping lunch at school too. It's harder to get to know that whether they are or not with that uh, or skipping evening meals saying I've just eaten at friends or I'm going to eat later. So having that family meal together where you can really see what they're eating, you can be cooking it yourself or or serving it yourself and, and seeing how much what the portion sizes are, that's really important. But of course, people can have an eating disorder just eating their dinner, you know, and if they've not eaten anything else in a day, they're going to lose weight and that's going to be a warning sign. And so in terms of physicality, obviously losing weight or disappearing to the bathroom when we're thinking about self-induced vomiting, a lot of young people will try and cover up their their shrinking body so they'll be wearing baggy clothes they often will be cold so they'll be wearing lots of layers so if on a sunny day you see your your kid you've been worried about their eating and you see that they're wearing a great big hoodie and you're thinking hmm, that's a bit strange you might want to be that might be a warning sign in terms of their feelings that they will be probably more low more snappy more anxious and in terms of their their thinking they might be they might hide this, but, you know, talking about food that they previously eaten as kind of unhealthy or bad for me or that sort of that sort of mentality. It's a very black and white thinking. So food becomes good or bad and healthy or healthy. I think the best way in is to be to be watching. So to try and have start having those meals together to be testing out, you know, your hypothesis a bit, you know, come and have breakfast with me. I've made some breakfast this morning for you, seeing what happens, you know, keep an eye on the, if they have a the sort of card at school where they pay for their lunches, you might want to have a quick look at that and see whether they've been buying their lunches. You don't want to go into accusatory, you don't want to go in, you want to go in curious, that's the word, you want to go in. You know, I've noticed you're not having breakfast anymore, I've noticed that you're wearing more layers than usual, just start to ask some questions. If they're very defensive to those questions or trying to avoid them, you might want to then seek out, you know, perhaps a doctor's appointment or that sort of thing. It's really important to, you know, unfortunately, dieting and weight related concerns is very common amongst young people. But an eating disorder, again, it's a it's a shade of grey, isn't it? When you start to become worried whether it's going on too long or whether you're worried about the the weight loss then you need to take it seriously quite quickly because once it becomes established behavior it becomes very hard to change you mentioned the in the first part of your answer the idea around having really good healthy modeling around food and i know caitlin moran has been one of your praise quotes on your book and i've read a lot about her in the work that she's done in her second book particularly on the chapter she has about her young daughter who she speaks quite openly about in terms of the eating disorder that this young girl has and one of the things that really got to me is that she she says so honestly Caitlin Moran that she wasn't a woman that ever worried about dieting never spoke about food in a way that was damaging or she felt because she was embracing cake and they were a family that baked and ate cakes together and so the idea that her daughter would suddenly develop something and I'm just saying this more generally not because of just what happened in her Caitlin Moran's family but I'm saying that there are lots of families out there that possibly do do really nice celebrations or have a healthy cultural thing about Friday night dinners or, or big family gatherings around food once a week or Sunday roasts or whatever they might be. But still somehow there are young girls develop a complex issue around food, which can lead into quite a severe mental or serious illness. I guess it's speaking to those families and maybe the guilt that some of the mums or dads might feel 
around not catching it or how did they miss this? Can we say anything to those parents? I just, I feel for you and, 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 you know, by raising that we should developmentally model good relationship with food um, in no means blaming those people whose young person develops an eating disorder because you know as parents you're only one influence on your on your child as we've talked about earlier you know they're going off into the world into a school environment and with their friends into society into a TikTok world that we know very little about you know there's so many different influences we can only do what we want so I think it's really important to model good relationship with food but then lots of young people develop eating disorders with parents who've got fantastic relationship with food who've done all the right stuff and you can't feel guilty about it because or please try not to feel guilty about it I should probably put that more accurately because you know you know shit happens and you can't be responsible for the all the attitudes and and standards and ideas that your child comes contact with as they go through the world you know and eating disorders has got much higher during um during COVID and during the lockdown so you know the expression of their the distress coming out as a, as a, as a mental a health problem yeah so I'm so sorry and I have to say that most of the parents the, the vast majority of the parents who I work with are absolutely wonderful people lovely people who've tried to do their best with their child and and I often learn from them and am inspired for them um, myself. But having that good relationship, I mean, those sort of things you talk about Friday night dinner, the Sunday roast and embracing cake are all going to be important in your daughter's recovery too, because you're, you've got you've got a building block there of a good relationship with food. We're just about coming to the end of our interview. It's been amazing to speak to you, Tara. And I love to end my interviews with a couple of questions I like to ask all my guests. One of them is, I think I know the answer to this, but if you could change one thing for young girls in the near future, what would it be? <laughs> I want to know what you think it would be. <laughs> um, I think, I think having gotten to know you a little bit and obviously read your book, probably helping young girls feeling happier in themselves. Yeah, very, absolutely. And, and I think one way of helping them, oh, totally, would be helping them feeling happier. Um, is to reduce the academic pressure they're under, I have to say. I think that they really internalise that academic pressure in a way that perhaps boys don't on average as much. And so giving them a way of life, which isn't just about, you know, starting secondary school, taking your GCSEs, taking your A-levels, going for a degree, and that's just feeling like such a relentless... And you're losing your childhood and innocence in the process, right? It's just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So bringing that back, let's, let's go back to simpler times and happier times for young girls. That would be a great message for us all. And if you could go back to yourself as a young teen girl, knowing what you know about life today, what would you whisper to yourself? You see, I think this is really, I find this a really interesting question because I knew you were going to ask it. Um, <laughs> so you've thought about it. <laughs> I thought about it. And I was just thinking about the pendulum of, you know, when I was at school and a teenager, we weren't really given any sense of opportunities or inspiration. There wasn't really a sense that we'd have to earn our own living. And so I would have said to myself that there was a sort of failure of imagination about what was possible. But you see, now I think the pendulum swung completely the other way, where, the, where girls are kind of put on a sort of relentless path of academic expectations. And, and I, I suppose what I would wish is it's somewhere in the middle, because I think the pendulum swinging to the other way, where they're on this relentless path, is also a failure of imagination about what is possible. What is right for that girl, for them, may not be on an academic 
pathway, a relentless academic pathway. So we go back to that magic word balance, finding that middle ground somewhere. (laughs) It's it's the theme. It's the theme of our conversation today. Tara, thank you. The synergies between our works are so aligned and it's obviously having your clinical background and having your wealth of experience provides such good context for us, for us listeners, for us parents, for us teachers. So I'm really am grateful for you taking the time to enlighten us with your wisdom and thank you for coming onto my podcast. And I'm sure that the knowledge you have imparted with us today will mean so much to so many. I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hi, it's been a while and I wanted to thank you for your patience. Since the last set of conversations we've released, I've published a book. I hope you already know about it, maybe even have it. I would love for you to share my new book, Girl Elevated, Five Steps to Empower Young Girls to Be Their Best with others, teachers, parents, coaches, your friends, anyone who works or is raising young girls. I hope this resource will be something that will be useful and helpful to many. If you have had it and you've enjoyed it, leave me a review on Amazon because that will help lots of other people find this resource as well. Thanks so much for all your support. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.